our text for this morning from God's Word for our sermon is Luke 8, 1 through 3. Continuing on in the book of Luke, chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I ask that you would work powerfully in the, all of our hearts. God, we just confess that we don't have the power to change our own hearts to make ourselves born again, or the power to continue on in our faith apart from your Spirit bringing life into us. God, I pray that we would see the true Christ this morning, the shocking Christ. Father, I pray that we wouldn't be offended by Him, but that we would cling to Him. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been trekking through Luke for almost a year now, and we're to uh, chapter 8, where Luke gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry in Galilee up to this point. In chapter 9, there's going to be a transition where Jesus' ministry kind of shifts from Galilee, this kind of no man's land of Israel to Jerusalem, the headquarters of of where Jewish life takes place. We're told that uh, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem in chapter 9. We see kind of the turn in his ministry where uh, he's headed to Jerusalem and he knows he's going there to die, to pay the price for sins. But Luke wants to sum up Jesus' ministry, what he's been doing uh, up to this point. And uh, as we look at that, I want to start by asking you a question uh, to consider. Does Jesus fit neatly into your life? Does he fit neatly into your plans? Does Jesus fit neatly into the way you think? Have you come to Jesus in such a way where it's like, oh, you know, I my life was like ice cream, and now here's the cherry that's on top. It was good, and now he just makes it a little better. Does Jesus just kind of come alongside your plans and say, I'm just going to make you more successful in your plans, in your way of thinking? If that's how you've experienced Christ, I want you to ask the question, have I really run into the Christ of the first eight chapters of the Gospel of Luke? In fact, the Bible tells us, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55.8 says this about God. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You could go look at the 
Hubble telescope and look at the furthest out galaxy, which is going to blow your mind as you try to figure out how far it is. They can't even see to the ends of the heavens. And yet that's how different God's ways are than our ways and His thoughts than our thoughts and His plans than our plans. In fact, in Psalm 50 verse 21, one of the issues with Israel and their wickedness was this. He says, the things you have done, I have been silent and you thought I was one like yourself. He's like, he's like, just because I didn't strike you dead in a moment with a lightning bolt, you thought, oh, God must be like us. Doesn't care that much about sin. Uh, he's not to be uh, revered. And we can be mistaken when we think that God is like we are. In fact, Jesus said things like this in Luke 17. He said, says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Now listen to me. Jesus came to ruin your life. To wreck your plans. He doesn't have plans like you have. His ways are different than your ways. The way He would do it is a different way than you would do it. And Jesus is teaching His disciples, if you think you can follow Me and your, keep your plans and just kind of add Me to it, you're wrong. If you try to keep this thing you had, you're going to lose your life. But if you lose it for my sake, you're going to find life. Because God is the one who gave you life. He knows the way. His plans are better than our plans. And His ministry style is better than our ministry style. In Luke 9.23... Jesus says this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, I mean, die daily, and follow me. Whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is the profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits himself? And then he says these sobering words, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Jesus said, what if your plans, what if you're the best planner in the whole world, the best worldly schemer, and you gain the whole world? You do it. You have all the money. You have all the power. You have all the popularity. What if you go do it the world's way and you get it all, but you forfeit yourself? And then he says, because he knows most people are going to be ashamed of him because he doesn't do it the world's way. And so he says, those who are ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of them. But those who are willing to lose that life that they had planned and trust Christ with their life, that one will find it. Up to this point, I have hope you've seen the shocking nature of Christ's ministry. <laughs> he is counter-cultural. He is shocking to every realm of uh, religiosity of His day. And so, what I want to consider today, and what I want you to consider is this, to embrace the shocking ministry of Christ 
and then embrace four aspects of it. The message, the methodology, the members, the means, and the meshing of the kingdom. Look at verse 1. Luke chapter 8, verse 1. Soon afterward, He went on through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with Him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. This is Luke's way of summarizing Jesus' ministry up to this point. If we just went and looked back at chapter 7, we saw Jesus heal the Roman captain's uh, servant. And Jesus surprisingly said he has better faith than anyone in Israel. Shocking. And then we saw Jesus raise up a widow's only son from the dead during a funeral procession. He raises him from the dead and then Rather than say, now go be my witness, go tell everyone what I did for you, he simply sees the widow's grief, raises him from the dead, and gives the son to the widow. The purpose of the miracle seems to be compassion for one widow lady who's lost her only son. And then... We see the greatest prophet in Israel up to this point, John the Baptist, begin to wonder whether or not he really is the one to come. After he already pointed at Jesus and said, this is whom you're waiting for. It's shocking. As John the Baptist's faith is struggling, the Roman centurion's faith is great. John seems to be struggling. And then the all-shocking story that we looked at last week with the Jesus being invited to a Pharisee's house and a prostitute coming in, a sinful woman coming in and begins to anoint Jesus' feet and weep and let her hair down, which was worthy of divorce in Jewish culture, begin to wipe His feet. Shocking that Jesus didn't get offended and say, what are you doing? As everyone in the room was thinking this. Who is this Christ that does things so different? Look at point one in your notes. Embrace the shocking message of the kingdom of God. Uh, If you notice in verse 1, it says he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. Back in chapter 4, when he does the summary of his ministry up to that point, he says this, the people sought to keep him to stay, but Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God in other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Jesus said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. That's why I came. That's why the Father sent me. That's why I'm here. Embrace the shocking message of the kingdom of God. You should be asking, well, what is the kingdom of God? Because Jesus' ministry is all about this message. It's actually not all about the miracles. The miracles come and, and say true things about the kingdom of God that's here and yet still to come. But Jesus' ministry was 
was uh, uh, centered around this message of preaching the kingdom and its good news. So here's what John Piper says when asked, what is the kingdom of God that the Gospels talk about so much? Piper writes, I think the most important thing I could say about the kingdom of God that could help people make sense out of all the uses and the basic meaning of the word kingdom in the Bible is God's reign, not God's realm or people. The kingdom creates a realm. The kingdom creates a people. But the kingdom of God is not synonymous with realm or its people. There's some people who think when you're talking about the kingdom of God, you're talking about the realm of God, or you're talking about God's people. But Piper says, to understand what the kingdom of God is, you need to understand the reign of a king. There's a sovereign king who's reigning. And when Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here, in your midst, and it's still to come, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It's here in a sense, but it's coming in a greater sense. What he's saying is, is the king has arrived and his kingdom work has begun. At one point, he said that he's plundering He's tying up the strong man, Satan, who's ruling over this world. He's coming in and he's beginning to plunder his reign. The good king is here. And what is the king? What has he come to do? He has come to preach good news. He has come to become the good news. This is the message of the kingdom. Just go back two verses into chapter 7. Look at what Jesus said to the sinful woman. He said, your sins are forgiven. Then those at the table with him begin to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. If you go in peace, you've heard the good news. The kingdom message is this. You can be forgiven of your sins. Jesus didn't come and say, you're not that bad. He came and He said, I'm coming again. Some are going to be ashamed of Me and judgment's coming on them. But for those who love Him, become part of the kingdom, their good king comes to save them and bring about the kingdom in its fullest sense. So the message of the kingdom is the message that brings forgiveness, salvation, and peace. Which is what we don't have as those who are fallen in Adam. We're told that what Adam and Eve sinned Every human being born after them is born in slavery to sin. There's a ruler over them, and it's their own selfishness, their own unbelief. And then there's a ruler outside of them that's oppressing them, the devil. And yet, even way back when Adam and Eve fell, there's a promise that someone born from the seed of a woman was going to crush that serpent. And even right after Adam and Eve sinned, remember, they tried to work out their own salvation right away. They took fig leaves and covered up their nakedness and shame. And it was like God said, that's not going to work because at the end of, of Genesis 3, what does God do? God clothes them with skins. Well, where do you get animal skins from? Animals. Well, the first Living beings to die on the earth were animals so that God could make a clothing and cover the shame of Adam and Eve. This is God's way of saying, I'm the only one that can take away your shame. I'm the only one that can take away your sin. And it involves the shedding of blood, a sacrifice to cover our shame. 
And so Jesus is showing up on the scene saying, I have good news to preach. The kingdom of God is at hand. So the kingdom message is the message about forgiveness of sins. In fact, in in Matthew 19, verses 23 through 24, we can see this. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are the same things. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience that doesn't like to use the name of God. So they substitute heaven in. Kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God is the same thing. And we even see it right in this text. He says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The message of the kingdom is about getting in about how you can be forgiven, how you can become a part of it. And Jesus says, you want to know how hard it is for someone who thinks they have a life, a rich person, who thinks they have a plan, who thinks they're okay? He says it's easier for a camel to go through a little eye of a needle than for that person to get into the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to say, with man this is impossible, but with God... All things are possible. When the king shows up, sinners can get in to the kingdom. But here's what I want you to see. Jesus' ministry revolved around one message. Yes, he spoke about a lot of things, but all those things are referring to the kingdom of God and his reign. He didn't come to be a political advocate. He didn't come to even... Uh, just to create social change. He came to preach the good news of the kingdom. That was the purpose of his ministry. He didn't get involved in a hundred different things. He came to seek and save the lost, the sinners. Embrace the shocking message of Christ. If you and I were going to create something, we'd probably have a multifaceted uh, ministry that would try to do a hundred different things. Well, Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God, He Himself bringing it in Himself and becoming the good news for us as He goes to the cross and dies. In Colossians 1.13, we read this. He has delivered us. Jesus has delivered us from the domain. That's a word. That's a kingdom word from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. A slave needs to be redeemed. He needs to be purchased to let free from his sin, from his slavery, from whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the message of Christ's ministry. Second, embrace the shocking methodology of the kingdom of God, the ministry of the kingdom of God. If you look back at uh, verse 1, it says, Afterward, he went on through the cities and villages proclaiming the kingdom of God. So he went on. This word uh, in the original Greek means to journey all through, to go all about. He's in kind of the back country of Israel. This isn't where you would start a ministry, you wouldn't think. With insignificant people in an insignificant place in these little villages, but he went all around and he went to the synagogues in this little area. He rarely went outside the borders of Israel. 
if you're coming as a king and you want to become a king of the entire world, wouldn't your plan, your methodology be vast? But God's ways are not our ways. He's focusing on insignificant people in insignificant places. And look at this methodology. He's proclaiming. It's the word caruso. It means to publicly and authoritatively herald an official message that must be listened to and obeyed. We don't understand heralding in the United States of America very much. In fact, we would despise it if we heard it, I think. But if you lived in a place where there was a king or a queen, you might hear a messenger come and say, hear ye, hear ye, the message of the king. Well, this is what Jesus' ministry is. Caruso, preaching. Here's the message from the king. Here's the message from God. Here's the message that must be obeyed. When the king speaks, the people need to obey. So it comes with authority, which is offensive to a culture that just wants to talk about ideas. We don't want to hear heralding. We don't want to hear preaching. We want to talk about ideas. And so his methodology can be offensive to those who have their own kingdoms and they're on their own thrones. And then the second word used uh, where it, it says, and bringing the kingdom is the Greek word for evangelism. It's an inviting into this good news. So it's a preaching, it's a command of repent and believe. Bow down to the king. He's the one who has rule over you. He's the one who's made you. But it's also an inviting into good news. That's what the word means. This is a king that is kind. The prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors find acceptance into His kingdom. But those who are proud and think they're good and think their lives are so important because of their status are out. But the methodology of His ministry is offensive. Listen. Pleading with people to be saved is not comfortable. Having a conversation is comfortable. Sharing ideas is comfortable. But what we're given as Christians who are called to share the gospel with their friends, we're ambassadors of Christ, which means we're His heralds. We're his people who authoritatively tell people what the king says, but then who passionately make an appeal. 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that God makes his appeal through us, telling sinners to come and find forgiveness for their sins in Christ. Jesus' message of the kingdom of a God was about forgiveness for sins. He's about to go to a cross. The good news is offensive. It is. God's Son, who's never did anything wrong in His life, is nailed to a cross, treated like a criminal. And not only that, but God His Father pours out His almighty wrath on His own Son because God in His love put your sins and my sins on Christ. And because God is just, God must punish sin. If you want to know how bad your sin is, look at what it took to save you. The Son of God 
the second person in the Trinity had to die under the wrath of God. God is just and justice will come through. Those who trust in Jesus Christ have an eternal sacrifice that washes their sins away. Our sins were against the eternal God. And those who reject Christ, justice is one thing and one thing only, eternal punishment. You sin against eternal God, eternal punishment is what's required. The only way we can be saved is if an eternal mediator, someone with the same value of God Himself, takes our place. Let's just admit. Oh, our Savior is a bleeding Savior. And when we get to heaven, we don't forget all that. We still sing about the blood of the Lamb. The love of God, the self-sacrificial love of God that came, became the good news so that sinners like us can hear the good news and find hope in Him. Look at this methodology. We're going to look at it more in point three, but he spent most of his time with 12 ordinary uneducated men. Does that seem very smart? Is that how you're going to try to conquer the, the world? He didn't chum with the powerful elite to get his way. You know, the, the saying is not what you know, it's who you know. It's not like Jesus is like, who do I got to get in with to make my kingdom go? He didn't do it that way. He goes to the poor. He goes to the outcast. He goes to the uneducated. What sort of methodology is this? But God's ways are not our ways. He does it different than the way we might do it. He didn't go all over the earth. He stayed in one small area. He worked among a broken, obscure people, the Israelites. One of the things I read this week is that John MacArthur learned from just studying the methodology of Christ is he says, I've learned this principle. Focus on the depth of your ministry and God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. MacArthur said my, his only goal when he became a pastor was to dive into the truth of God so that he could tell people accurately. He could plead with people with the mouth of God to come trust Christ. To do that well, and God will take care of what the ministry turns into. And then he compared that to, to what he called movers and shakers. The brilliant methodology church growth strategists that figure out all the brilliant ways to make a church grow. And he said the reason why that never put hooks in him, the reason why he was never tempted to jump in to that system was because he knew that's not how God builds His kingdom. God's ways are not our ways. He wants us to trust Him to have an unlikely plan with unlikely people. This is why you fit in to God's plan so clearly. It's because none of us in this room are very impressive. Nobody in the world knows who any of us are. We're probably never going to do great and mighty things in the eyes of the world. But that's not how God changed the world through His Gospel. He did it a different way. Look at the members of the kingdom of God. He chooses 12. Uh, I want to quote MacArthur here. He says this, none of the 12 disciples that Jesus chose were among the elite or influential Jew in, of Jewish society. Their ranks included zero scribes, 
Zero Pharisees, zero Sadducees, zero priests, zero rabbis or synagogue rulers. They did not come from the wealthy or influential families. They had no friends in high places. The twelve frequently disappointed them with their weak faith. They lacked insight. All of them abandoned him at his hour of need, but he poured his life into them and turned them into men who would turn the world upside down. What are you going to do? If we want sovereign grace to have an impact for God's purposes in Aberdeen, who do we go? What superstar do we bring in? to help our ministry flourish. God's ways are not our ways. He uses bumbling, stumbling, uneducated, ordinary people to advance His kingdom. In fact, in Acts 4.13, and if you remember, Luke is actually in the same book of Acts. It's Luke-Acts. And we, we split it up in our Bibles, but they're together. And in Acts 4.13, as they're hearing a fisherman who's probably not well-spoken preach this amazing, powerful message with authority, here's, here's, here's what it says. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Isn't this amazing? You just look at the disciples, and you could just tell they were nobodies in the eyes of the world, and yet God was working powerfully through Him. Now, I don't consider myself a great preacher. I don't consider myself a great pastor, but I can tell you this. My sophomore year at the University of Sioux Falls, I have to take a speech class where I have to give a speech, and I can't catch my breath to get words out. sounds like I'm about to cry. I'm so nervous talking in front of people. My grade point Average from high school was 2.2. I had never read a whole book through till I was like 31 years old. My mom said, as I was changing, as about seven, eight years ago, when God began to really work in my life, she was kind of scared with how drastic things were changing, but she says, it must be from God because you don't read. And I read like, 18 books in one year. What are you going to explain that by? I had a youth group friend, young man in my youth group, come to me, tell me to listen to this sermon three weeks in a row. And I'm thinking, I'm never going to listen to a sermon. On Take an hour? I said, how long is it? An hour? I thought, yeah, right. Well, God used that sermon to turn my life around. God uses the losers, the nobodies of the world. Why? So that He will be glorified and that man will not be glorified. So that we would be humbled. The only way you can explain Christianity is the power of God. But then, the other shocker is the women. Look at our text. This is so amazing. Luke wants us to know. He says, so he talks about the twelve that are with him. But then he says, also some women had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene. And then he talks about Joanna, the wife of Chusa. And then he talks about Susanna. Now, We cannot understand how shocking this was. 
The Jews did not believe. The rabbis taught the women could not learn from them. They would not teach women. They wouldn't. And yet as Luke was describing Jesus' ministry, he's describing 12 ordinary men, and then he's describing these women. One of them oppressed with demons. The fact that seven demons went out of her, seven is the number of fullness. She was oppressed to the full degree in her life. And yet, Christ had brought her in. And then Joanna, the wicked Herod, the king of the land, the guy who runs his household, that guy's wife, this woman of high standing, trusted Jesus, believed in Jesus. Not many rich, but some. Not many with very many means, but a few. She was there. In Susanna, we don't know anything about. But Luke wants us to see this ragtag bunch that would have been absolutely shocking in their culture. Are you kidding me? He's teaching women. He's picked fishermen and tax collectors to be a part of those who he's going to spend the majority of his time teaching with. He's saying that members of the kingdom of God are prostitutes and sinners and that Simon the Pharisee is not getting in. The shocking nature of Christ's ministry. In fact, Luke and Matthew continue to point us towards the women In Luke 24.10, we read, after the women had gone to his uh, tomb, now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, she was there too, Mary the mother of James and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. It was the women who went to take care of Jesus' body to minister to Him even in His death. And then in Matthew 27, 55, when Jesus is being crucified, when He's going to be crucified, it says there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee. That's where His ministry has been so far. Ministering to Him. Matthew wants you to know that the women who were ministering to Jesus were there. They went into dangerous territory to follow Jesus to the cross. And among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. How did these people get in the kingdom of God? Jesus said this in John 6.37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Well, when God comes and gives people to Jesus Christ to trust in Him, God picks who the world would not pick. In fact, when Jesus sent the disciples out to do ministry and they cast out demons and they healed people, they were all excited. And Jesus said this, Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, there's two times the Bible says Jesus rejoiced, and this is one of them. Here's what he said to rejoice in. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and to anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus rejoices, says, Father, it's your gracious will that the wise, proud people are blind to Him. And the nobodies, the children of the world, the helpless of the world, come to Him. Trust Him. What an amazing God we have. If you're here trusting Jesus, rejoice that your names are written in the kingdom of heaven because you would not have gotten there apart from the grace of God, the Father giving you to Jesus Christ. i got to read one more passage just to prove it to you if you're doubting. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes this, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, Paul's saying, I didn't earn this ministry. I was killing Christians and God saved me. By the mercy of God, I have this ministry. Then he says this, but we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. He says we just proclaim the word of God. We don't tamper with it. We don't scheme it. And then he says, even if our gospel is veiled, meaning hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, these are not victims. Satan comes and makes unbelievers more blind. But they're unbelievers on their own. They're naturally rebellious against God. But then he says this, in their case, the God of this world blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing something. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then Paul says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. We ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul's saying, all we do is preach Christ. There's some who hear our message and they don't see the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. They hear it, but it's just dead to their hearts. But then, verse 6, these are the believers. Look at what happens. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness. That's speaking at creation. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And Paul's saying, that God, the one who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There's all sorts of people who know the message of the gospel. They can write it down, but it's not light to them. Well, how is it light to us? It's not because you're smarter. It's not because you're better. It's because the God who said, let light shine by His mercy and grace has shown in your heart that you might trust Him. The members, embrace the members of the kingdom of God. Amazing. And we don't have much time, so I'm going to go fast through these last two. Embrace the shocking means of the kingdom of God. Look at the end of verse 3. After he names the women, he says of many others, meaning many other women, who provided for them. Them is Jesus and the twelve disciples out of their means. I want to quote a wonderful theologian. Not only is he a wonderful theologian, he's a handsome young man. His name's Scott Ristow. <laughs> I was talking to him this week about this text, and we were looking at this shocking statement, and Scott said something which he does often that's very profound. He said, there is a sense in which Jesus could not provide for the disciples or himself apart from the women. 
Not in an ultimate sense, but in a providential sense. Now we know Jesus can make food in a moment, but he didn't. Foxes have holes, birds of theirs have nests. Son of man has no place to lay his head. And God in his providence provided for the 12 disciples and for Jesus Christ himself through these women, through their means. The ones from Galilee who were ministering to him. Unbelievably shocking in Jesus' day. So offensive to what was norm. And this ties into, look at how the ministry of God is supported by ordinary people. We don't go to Donald Trump and ask for millions of dollars. We don't go just ordinary people who love Jesus, who want to give voluntarily out of their means. That's how Jesus was supported and the 12 disciples were just supported in His day. That's how kingdom ministry goes today. And finally, embrace the shocking message of the members, meshing of the members. Here's what I want to get at. If you go back to Genesis 1, and this, Scott, help me here too. I just got to give credit where credit's due. You go back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Genesis 1 points out the equality of men and women. They're both created in the image of God. Chapter 2 points out the distinction in their roles. So they're equal in essence and value, but God gives them different roles. The roles aren't interchangeable. And Scott pointed out, notice, there's 12 apostles and they're all men. And then you have these women who connect with their ministry. The ministry couldn't go without them. They come alongside as helpers and the kingdom ministry happens. But when Adam and Eve sinned, it's the saddest thing. Adam, you have this beautiful marriage in chapter 2. At last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, here's my wife. But then she sins. And he says, the woman whom you gave me. You see the first broken marriage right there. It's worse than you think. Adam's saying, kill my wife. Because God said, whoever eats of that fruit will surely die. And Adam says, she gave me the fruit. And we're told that men now are going to use their position to rule harshly. Ever since the fall of Adam, wherever there was authority and power, it's abused. And women in their roles, it's often rejected. And there's a passionate plea to have the role of the man. But in this weird Shocking ministry where the kingdom of God is present. You have people that should never get along, never uniting, uniting together. Disease, when Jesus shows up, went away. It's a picture of the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom that we pray for. My prayer is is that you're not ashamed by this ministry but you're drawn to it. Let's pray. Father, you are so good. We just confess that your ways are not our ways, but they're better. Father, I pray we would lose confidence in and of ourselves and desperately find our anchor in Christ. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.